voice is better. I, could, I tried to sing yesterday, and it was kind of scary. I couldn't, I couldn't even hardly talk yesterday. So it is getting better. And hopefully by Christmas Eve, we'll be back to normal. Please join us Christmas Eve. And we'll, uh, we're going to be talking. Uh, I'll be sharing with you a little story um, that I wrote. So please come for that. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. You know, we spent the last few weeks talking about uh, prophecy. We looked at the prophecy pointing to the baby in the manger. Um, so today we're going we're gonna to look at a great sign. It seems today that many people are looking for a sign. They see the signs and, and what's going on in our world, and we're looking for a sign. We're looking for the sign when Christ is going to come back. And, and, and throughout the Old Testament, God gave, gave people signs of what was going to happen. And, and the amazing thing about it is it's not all in one place. It's spread out throughout the scriptures. And as I said before, we hear from Paul as to why that is. Because if those in power, which he's talking about, the spiritual forces, if they had known who Jesus was, they never would have crucified him. But he, we know that he had to be crucified. That's why he came. So this sign that we're going to talk about today is not only pivotal to Christmas and to the Christmas story, it's also pivotal, pivotal, pivotal to our faith in Jesus Christ. Those of you who know who Larry King is, most young people probably wouldn't know who he is, but he was an award-winning radio and television host. And he, he, through his, throughout his career, he had interviewed 50,000 people. And he was asked one time, if there was one person in history that you could interview, who would it be? And he says it would be Jesus Christ, without even pausing. And they're like, well, what would you ask him? He says, I, I would ask, I would like to ask him if he is indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. So we're going to look at this history-changing prophecy of the virgin birth. Now, obviously, our first inclination when we think about the prophecy of the virgin birth is to go to Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Probably a verse that's been quoted many times this Christmas season in many churches. And yes, we will get to that. But again, I want to say it goes back even further. I mean, these words from Isaiah were given 700 years before the birth of Christ. So we want to go back further, though, much further back than Isaiah. And we're going to do very similar to what I did last time. We're going to look at the history. We're going to look at, you know, the background of the prophecy. And then we're going to go to the content of the prophecy. And finally, we're going to hit the fulfillment of the prophecy and the importance of it. <coughs> so let's begin with the background of the prophecy. Well, we've been many times in the last couple of weeks, we've always been, keep going back to that same place in Genesis. We keep going back to Genesis 3.15, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, they've sinned, and God has come, and, and he's, he's, he's given them the curse, he's cursing the serpent. And he says, in this, he says, you know, you're going to be, there's going to be somebody born of her. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and read that again. It says in verse 315 of Genesis, says, I will put enmity. And remember, enmity, enmity is not just, oh, I don't like you. No, it is a hatred. Literally a hatred towards something. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman. You, I'll be honest with you today. The world today hates Christianity. The, the world tries to tout that it is that is oh we're you know we're we're tolerant of religions except for one. Jesus himself said, "Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. And the only ones it loves are those who are of the world, and you're not of the world. So don't be surprised." when you are hated because of your faith in Christ. We're seeing it more and more today. But this prophecy back in Genesis emphasizes the fact that the, the, the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. Now that seems kind of strange because, and we've talked about this a little bit, but shouldn't it say the seed of a man? Why is, why is Adam not included? I mean, because you imagine Adam standing there and, what do you mean to be born of? What about me? You know? I mean, I've already sinned. I might as well have the sin of pride also. This is a extraordinarily, it's very important because normally the line of descent follows through the man instead of the woman. This is countercultural, even for Judaism. That, the, that the God would say the seed of the woman. Why didn't. God tells the serpent that he would put enmity between the serpent and the man. I know a lot of men who don't like snakes. Jeff, wherever he went, he's probably back teaching. He doesn't like snakes. Sometime I'll, I'll buy a bunch of rubber snakes and everybody can bring them in and he'll never come back again. You know, why did, why did God say enmity between you and the woman instead of you and the man? Between his offspring and the serpent's offspring. Well, we know why, because the, the, the Messiah comes because he would be born of the seed of a woman and not the man. So we could see here in Genesis 3.15 an early hint at the virgin birth. And, and what's going to happen is that, that emphasis on the seed of the woman is going to continue throughout Scripture and into the New Testament. If we go to Matthew, we'll see a reference, again, hidden in plain sight. God hid all these things in plain sight in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hidden in plain sight. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. Listing the name of the many fathers in Jesus' line. As we come down to the bottom of this list, we see something kind of odd. Matthew 1.16 says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, which is Messiah. Now, there's much discussion about the genealogy of Jesus and how the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke don't match and how actually it doesn't match the prophecy. And sometime we're going to talk about it. I will. I, I, I've got it. We've got it figured out. They figured out kind of what's going on. Actually, what's interesting is it's a misinterpretation, a copying error that was done by a scribe because reality is the thought is by theologians today is that Joseph was also the, the name of Mary's father not just her husband. And that equals out to the total number, if you count the number of, of the line before the, the captivity and after the captivity, it equals out because that's one of the discrepancies. But if we take it for what's written here in verse 16, if we take it at face value that we see Joseph mentioned, but not as the father of Jesus, but as the husband of Mary. Well, that's kind of odd, don't you think? You know, 
Uh, now, granted, today it's not that strange to not have a father in the picture, but could you imagine? Could you imagine being at the hospital? Your wife has had her, her baby, and, and, and people are coming in, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, introducing the new nurse for the new, you know, the new shift, and this is, this is Mary, and this is her son, and oh, this is Mary's husband. I mean, is he not the father of a child? You know, it seems kind of odd. If this shows showing, though, that Joseph was the adopted father of Jesus. But it's Mary that Jesus is born of, the seed of the woman and not of the man. And if we go to the genealogy of Luke, which is interesting also because Matthew goes from, the begin, from back at the beginning to Jesus. Luke goes from Jesus backwards. We see something rather similar in verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Obviously, you see that Matthew's gospel goes through Mary's line of secession, going back, and Luke goes through Joseph's line. So Jesus is not only legally in the line of David, but also spiritually in the line of David. But Joseph, again, is excluded from being the physical father of Jesus. Jesus was born of the seed of the woman and not of a man. If we go to Galatians, what Paul writes in Galatians 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now look at what Paul says. He says, Jesus was born of a woman, but not a man. Now that's it's not unusual for for you know for children to be born of a woman unless you're in California and they think men can have babies. They do seriously. It's scary what they think. Or I don't know if you've heard the recent news, but now they're able to develop like thirty thousand babies in incubators, um, pods that they're going to start growing babies. Yeah, it's scary. But it seems that Paul here is going out of his way to say that Jesus was born of a woman only, which would make the birth of Christ very, very unique. So that is the first part of the background of the virgin birth. The second part deals with an attack on Judah that ultimately will not take place. So we need to go back into Isaiah to see part two of this background. And we're going to look at King Ahaz. King Ahaz was king of Jerusalem. The kingdom had been split between Israel in the north, the ten tribes in the north, and Judah and Benjamin in the south. And King Ahaz is king of Judah in the south. And, and he'd been reigning for, he reigned for over 20 years, from 735 to 715 B.C. And it was during this time that the nation of Ephraim had joined with the nation of Aram. And what they were doing, they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they were planning an attack on Judah. They wanted to take the city. They wanted everything. And we see in verse 2 of Isaiah 7, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Did you catch that at the beginning, that first line? What is Ahaz and the people called? They are called the house of David. See, this is, this is to remind us that 
that Ahaz is in the line of the secession to the Messiah. And yet, it hasn't happened yet. It's coming from the seed of Eve. He is, he is in that line. But even that is not enough to calm Ahaz and the people's fears about this army that's coming to, to conquer Jerusalem and Judah. They are seriously troubled by the news. They're shaking like trees shake in the wind. So God sends Isaiah to reassure Ahaz. That's what it says in verse 5 through 7. God says, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah had devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Look how, I mean, you got to catch these little nuances in the language that's being used and the words they're using. Words matter. Words matter a lot. Look at what Isaiah, what does he call God? He doesn't just say Yahweh. He doesn't just say God says. He says the Lord God. Why is that significant? See, what this is saying is God is Lord. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his purview. Nothing happens that he doesn't already think about. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow or cause, one of the two. Yes, he allows evil to happen. Why? For his purposes. It all works out for his purposes. Nothing happens unless God says so. He and only he is Lord. Now, you and I, we may plot, we may scheme, we may plan. We can do that all we want all day. In the end, we're going to do exactly what God wants us to do. It's going to work into his plan. Or we're going to do, we're going to do exactly what God doesn't want us to do, and it's going to work into his plan either way. We saw this last week as Balak and Balaam were trying to curse the Israelites. And every single time, Balaam bless them. It's because God's sovereignty that James instructs us in James 4. This is Jesus' half-brother. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Oh, we, we like to know. How many of us woke up this morning and looked, checked the weather? Oh, well, we know this week is going to get very cold. My wife comes in and says, do you have the snowblower fixed yet? I'm like, no. She's like, we well, better by Thursday because there's going to be snow. You know, we, we want to know what tomorrow brings. We want to be assured of what tomorrow is going to do. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. If the Lord wills, I'll get the snowblower fixed. Now, that doesn't mean that I can just put it off and say, well, God God didn't want it done. You know, it's not an excuse. But it's an understanding that nothing happens in my life that God does not ordain. Yes, I have free will. Even that, though, God uses for his glory. So guess what? 
Ahaz and the people are all afraid. But Aram and Ephraim do not attack and they do not take Judah. The line of Judah is going to continue. The line of Christ coming, going all the way back to Eve. The seed of the woman is going to continue. And later on we see Ahaz in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew says, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. He has nothing, Ahaz has nothing to worry about. God has this. He's got it. They're safe for now. Now the day will come when they'll go into captivity in Babylon. It's going to be well after Ahaz has died. And it's all because of their lack of faith. And God knew that was going to happen also. But again, it's all part of God's plan. Remember last week I said that it's very possible that the gifts that were given to Jesus and his family by the wise men probably came from Daniel's inheritance, his, his estate. It's very possible. The exile of Judah provides the means for the gifts that would help support the family as they escape to Egypt. God plans all this out. When God created the universe, he knew you. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what you were going to be thinking. He knew all of it. That's the history of this prophecy. Now let's get into the content. Now, after Isaiah assures Ahaz that this attack will never occur, God prompts Ahaz to ask for a sign. He says, ask for a sign. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, which there's nothing deeper than Sheol, or as high as heaven. God is giving Ahaz an opportunity. I will, I'm going to assure you, you ask me for something and I'll show you a sign that this is going to happen. But what does Ahaz do? He refuses. Oh, I'm not. No. I'm not going to put God to the test. No, not me. Not me. Now, it, it may seem like Ahaz is, is being rather spiritual. Oh, hey, he's being a good guy. He's not going to put God to the test. But the reality is, is that he's just making excuses. And how do we know that? Because later on we find that he had already planned to ally himself with the Egyptians in order to defeat Ephraim and Aram. See, that's the beauty of of having hindsight. We can see what he was thinking and what he did. He didn't trust God. Oh, I'm I'm not going to test God. I have full faith in God. No, you don't. You're a liar. If you did have faith in God, you would do what God told you to do. So what does God do? God's going to give him a sign anyways. In verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So let's kind of look at this prophecy. It says, the virgin shall conceive. I mean, this is the miracle in this prophecy. It is impossible for a virgin to conceive and have a child. 
But this is the very thing that makes this a sign. There's nothing amazing about a non-virgin given birth. On average, 11,000 times each day in the United States, a non-virgin gives birth to a child. Okay? It's not uncommon, but it is very uncommon to have a virgin conceive. Now that is a sign. And this virgin will bear a son. This, what this does is this moves the emphasis off of the woman. Because think about this. From the beginning, her seed. It's talking about the seed of a woman. The focus is on the woman. Who's that woman going to be? And, and along the line, I'm sure that women were thinking, am I, and especially if they're of the line of David, am I that woman whose seed will be the Messiah? And in this prophecy right there, God has taken the emphasis off of the woman and he puts it on the child. The prophecy, the sign is more about than just a virgin conceiving. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a specific individual and that individual will be a son. He'll be male, a male child which harkens back to the prophecy given in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise, I mean, he shall crush your head and he shall bruise your heel. I got that backwards. He will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, it all, God works all this out. It's all working out according to his plan. He will be called Emmanuel. This is the third part of this sign. It's talking about what his name would be. Emmanuel, if we translate that into English, means God with us. This male child, born of a virgin, of the seed of a woman, would signal the fact that God is now down on earth with us. The promised seed of David would arrive just as God said he would. And the sign that he was here would be the virgin birth. So that's the content of it. It's a content. Now understand, I'm sure that Ahaz didn't understand any of that. Again, hindsight is 2020. So let's talk about the fulfillment. Of course, the fulfillment of the prophecy is found in the birth of Jesus that's recorded in the New Testament and what we celebrate every December. We can also see the fulfillment in some of the details of the birth. One of the first things we see is that an angel comes and visits Mary. We believe it's Gabriel. And here's what he tells her. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The word, these words kind of actually in the flow of things follow exactly the prophecy in Isaiah. The only difference is in the name. And while Jesus was never called Emmanuel by those around him, by the way, he was also not called Christ or Jesus Christ around his people around him. Usually probably his disciples called him Rabbi or Jesus, which was his name, Yeshua. This idea of Emmanuel is the perfect description of who he was. 
He was God in the flesh, God amongst us, fully God, fully human. He was Yeshua or Joshua, if you translate that into what it really is, which means God saves or salvation. The name Jesus did not yet exist during the time of Jesus Christ was on earth. Nobody called him. No, you didn't hear the word Jesus. You heard Yeshua. Approximately 4 B.C. to 29 B.C. or 34 A.D., um, that's when it came into being. It did not come into existence until it was configured by the Council of Nicaea of the Roman Catholic Church in the 4th century. They didn't call him that. They didn't call him Jesus. But Mary gets this visit, and it kind of mirrors Isaiah's prophecy to King Ahaz. And then also the angel goes and he talks to Joseph. After Mary's found pregnant, we read in Matthew 1. But as he considered these things, Joseph <clears throat> realizes, knows that Mary's pregnant. He knows it's not his. He can divorce her. Chances are she would not have been stoned because the Romans would not allow it normally. They could secretly do it. But as he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Interesting now, he, he reminds Joseph of his lineage. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This time, Joseph is concerned. He's concerned that this baby is somebody else's. But he's assured by the angel the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So we see again the angel coming in and telling Joseph, it's, it's a virgin birth. It's a miracle. And then the, angels, the angel comes and does instructions to the shepherds. After Jesus was born, he appear, they appear, an angel appears to the shepherds who are out in the field, and they, they're instructed to go and find the child. And this, you, you all know this verse. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's interesting because remember what Ahaz was told by Isaiah. The sign is the virgin birth. The shepherds are told that the sign is the child wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Cloths lying in a manger. God had promised 700 years earlier that the virgin who was with child would be given birth to a baby boy. Now, understand, I don't think the shepherds knew that Mary was a virgin. At this point, it doesn't matter. Because guess what? God is with us. That's what matters. And the proof of the baby was wrapped in cloths and was lying in a manger. Now, why does this matter? Why, why did we have to have, why did there have to be a virgin birth? Why was there such a huge emphasis put on it? You know, we've seen the background, we've seen the content, we've seen the fulfillment. <clears throat> I think it's important that we, like Larry King, understand the significance of it. What does it change for us? Why is this such a big deal? Well, first of all, we know that 
the birth of Jesus fulfills prophecy. In Matthew, we're told, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Understand that, that the birth of Christ did not happen in some historical vacuum. I mean, there's a lot that's laid it down before in past history leading up to this point. Now, some people might look at the story of the virgin birth and say, well, it's impossible. It can't happen. There had to be something. It wasn't true. Understand that as, as the world has attacked Christianity, one of the main attacks is on the virgin birth. Why? Why would the evil one want so much to attack the virgin birth? Well, first of all, it fulfills prophecy. And if that prophecy is fulfilled, guess what? All the rest of the prophecies are going to happen to them. They're going to get fulfilled. But see, people think it's impossible, but isn't that the point of a miracle? I mean, if, if, it was, if miracles were always possible, we'd be doing them all the time. But the point of a miracle is that it is impossible for us. When Mary asked, she asked the angel, now wait a minute, you're telling me that, that I'm, I've never been with a man. How is it possible that I'm going to have a child? And the angel tells her, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, that's, that's one of the reasons why Paul, when he writes to the church, he tells them, your, your prayers are not getting answered. Why? Because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask for the wrong reasons. So you've got to ask for the right reasons. You've got to trust that God knows what he's doing. It's all going to work out for his plan. So you ask for it. I, I prayed for somebody this week. I asked that God would heal them. If it was his will, they would be healed. Do I have faith that God will do it? Yes. I have complete faith that God can do it. There's no doubt. Nothing is impossible for God. But do I know that it's his will that they be healed? No. At least not now. I know ultimately this is will for all of us to be healed, but it usually, well, for a lot of people, it's going to happen when we die. That's when we're healed. But for some, it'll be before, but it's his will. See, a true miracle is something only God can do. Only God can make a virgin conceive. It truly is a miracle of God. Because see, Joseph was told that the child that Mary carried was from the Holy Spirit. Only God could do it. Thirdly, Jesus was born without sin. See, you and I, as humans, we carry with us what's called our sin nature. Paul talks about it. We're supposed to put it to death. We have original sin because of what Adam and Eve did. because of what Adam did specifically. But because Jesus was born of a virgin, he was born without original sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. It wasn't until he was on the cross and God imputed upon him, which means he took our sins and placed it upon him, that Jesus felt the heaviness of sin. He was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Why? So that we could receive the righteousness of God through him. Jesus was born without sin. And Jesus was born to be our Savior. In Matthew 1, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man. Remember what I said earlier. His name was Yeshua. Yeshua means God saves, or God is salvation. The very name of Jesus foretold why he was here and what he would do for us on the cross. His name said it all. Now, I'm not saying that every time you name a child that that's the destiny for that child. Uh, for me, it was for some reason. I, my name's Christopher. You know what Christopher means? Christ bearer. I'm a pastor. I never thought I'd be a pastor. God knows what he's doing, I guess. I don't guess, I know. We read in 1 Timothy 2, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Jesus was fully man and fully human. He, he had to be. He had to be fully man because only man can die. And he had to die for our sins. He had to be fully God because only God can die because God can, can't die. Only God can, can pay the price for our sins. That's why Isaiah called him Emmanuel, God with us. What does this mean for us this Christmas season? Well, just like Larry King said, I think the virgin birth defines history for us. Jesus was born of a virgin just as Isaiah prophesied. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman as prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He is the promised one who's going to come from Abraham through all the nations going to be blessed. He is from the promised tribe of Judah. We saw that, talked about that last week. This is the promised king of the house of David. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the only, the only special son of God. There's no other son like him. There are other sons of God who were created because they're sons of God, because they were created by him. You and I are called sons and daughters of God. When we accept Christ, we're part of the family, but we are none of us are anything like Christ. He is special. There's something very special about him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, being fully God and fully human. 
so that he could die for our sins and be Savior of the world. He is our Savior, and he is our only hope. We must put our trust in him daily. That's what this is all about. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who fulfills the third great prophecy of Christmas. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Let's pray.